Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and you're listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest for Into Music Episode 3 is John Regan. Regan is an acclaimed singer-songwriter based in New York City. He began his career as sideman with Kyle Eastwood and Little Jimmy Scott. His solo albums range from jazz recordings, such as Live at the Blue Note, to singer-songwriter-focused releases, such as his latest, 2023's Satisfied Mind. On this episode of Into Music, Regan recalls his time studying under jazz great Kenny Barron at Rutgers University. His brief spell at the University of Miami, where he studied with Vince Maggio. That relationship, Regan recalls, was difficult, but he adds, in later years, his former teacher also became a musical mentor. That's John Regan on Into Music, coming up now. The first question that I, uh, I, I kind of ask people is, is what was kind of the, the aha moment for you for music itself? You know, it's hard to point to one. I just remember, you know, as a two or three year old, just feeling like music was what was the like electrical currency of my existence. I mean, whether it was like playing a beaten up guitar that my dad had from his childhood or the horrendous thrift store piano that my parents had. Uh, that I taught myself to play on. I mean, whatever I was picking up or kind of banging on, I just had an affinity for the rhythm and the and the, the melody and the sounds that I could create out of my head. You know, my parents didn't really have a inspiring record collection, to say the least. They listened to like Barry Manilow and show tunes from the 70s. You might have thought my parents were drag performers by looking at their record collection it wasn't you know i i talked to so many friends who were like oh i grew up with the beatles or john coltrane it wasn't like that in my house so between my parents bad record collection and me growing up in the 80s i was sort of left to fend for myself but uh, i just know that i felt like whatever music was going on it was i was a part of it even if i was just listening to it where did the, the, the kind of outside stuff come in? Did you have a, like a neighborhood friend? Did you have like the radio, those sorts of things? You know, um, my sister was a flute player. And uh, so there was music in the house. And I think early on, my parents realized they had an affinity for it. So they got me lessons. But like many musicians, I hated practicing and I, I was distracted by the world. So I wasn't really a good sight reader. And I just sort of gave up on the on the traditional methodology of, of learning music. But that being said, even when I stopped taking lessons, I you know, was playing Howard Jones songs that I heard on the radio on the piano or or, you know, Night Ranger songs or whatever horrendous songs were on radio in my childhood, I could sort of copy them. And then a watershed moment for me came when my sister went to a music camp in Maine called on Corcota in Sweden, Maine, and I went the following year with her, and that's where I met my now long-term friend Larry Goldings, who's a legendary keyboard player with James Taylor and his own jazz exploits and John Mayer, et cetera. Even Larry cites that camp as a big influence on him, and and um, I just sort of had the feeling at an early age that that was my tribe, you know, that the, these were my people, and. Uh, came back from that music camp and then went to 
you know, middle school and got involved in the jazz band. I had a great jazz instructor named Matt Krampaski, who was really like a drum corps brass player, but he loved teaching and he loved championing kids. And I was sort of one of his pet projects. And, you know, people forget that at the time that I and, and probably your generation that we were growing up, it wasn't like now with YouTube where you could say, oh, what was that Herbie Hancock concert from 1971 in Stuttgart, Germany? You know, you couldn't find anything back then. So you were sort of stuck with whatever was in your town. And so there wasn't a whole lot of inspiring jazz around me, but, you know, I was slowly piecing it together from my jazz band. And um, then I got very into Bruce Hornsby. I heard Bruce Hornsby went to the University of Miami. So I auditioned to get in there for college and I ended up going down there to study music. And so that was just sort of the beginning. I sort of was just finding things that resonated with me and then chasing them. I also went to the Eastman School of Music summer session in 1987 where I also met some tremendous musicians like Joel Fromm and Neil Minor, guys who are now, you know, titans on the jazz scene. So I, you know, I had some formidable experiences that, that really shaped me to this day. What do you think it was, you know, specific, can you, can you point to something specifically, for instance, from that jazz camp that was just, was it just that you were allowed to see all these things that you couldn't see before or hear all these things you couldn't hear before? Or was there something really specific that happened there? I mean, for me, I think that if if I was to, to, to think about it, I just think from an early age, I discovered what made me tick. And, and it was like, you know, I remember being nine, 10 years old at my grandparents' house, reading issues of Downbeat magazine that I checked out from the library. I mean, I was just always into gear. You know, again, pre-internet days, you had to like seek this, these things out. You had to go to the library and you had to subscribe to magazines and and it just wasn't all available on your phone so i just think that early on i sort of discovered that that was part of my dna that being a musician and being involved in music to this day i mean i i'm the exact same person i was when i was a child you know like i'm uh, i'm into gear i'm into bands i'm into music i'm into you know, making it, listening to it. It's sort of how I ended up becoming a writer, you know, later in my life uh, about music. I can't point to one specific thing. I just think that I I can remember being two, three years old in my parents' house, like putting on little concerts badly. But I was like, I'm doing this. I am a musician. I do think that being around it on a high level, you know, like at that music camp on Corcota or later at University of Miami, and just seeing that, what it meant to apply yourself and how good you could be and how you could, you know, excel. I never wanted to be famous. I just wanted to be good. I think that's a, in many ways, it's a lost art form. When I, when I was coming up, it was like, you know, people that were in the symphony, that was good enough for them. You know, I'm the first clarinetist in the New York Philharmonic. That's great. Now everybody has to have more followers on Instagram, but you know, where, when I came up, it was like, can you be great? And still, that's the mantra of my life. You know, can I can can this song be better than the next one? You know, can this concert be great? And uh, I think I learned that very early on around great performers and great teachers. I mean, I studied with one of the most legendary pianists of our time, Kenny Barron, when I went to Rutgers. And that was a huge learning experience, not just the osmosis-injected sense of time and touch and, and, and groove on the piano, 
But to see a guy who played with Stan Getz and, and countless recordings and tours, dressed to the nines, acting with class, never boasting about what he did. And so you know, from an early age, I kind of got this idea that, that this was serious work that you had to really apply yourself to and take it as seriously as a doctor takes his job. And yet you still have the time of your life. And so that was what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be involved in music and part of this, this, uh, this gang that I still feel extraordinarily part of. Tell me about University of Miami, because that's not an easy place to get into. So what, what was your experience like there? I mean, really, I got extraordinarily into Bruce Hornsby when I was 16, 17, you know, 16 when he won the Grammy. For me, it was like the second coming of Billy Joel, like, you know, to see the piano back in pop music. And I had heard that he had gone to University of Miami to study with this legendary piano teacher, Vince Maggio. So I I went, you know, I applied and got in. And uh, I had a really rough time that year that I was down there. I was just not. You know, I was away from home and everything that I knew at home. And I really, I love jazz, but I didn't really know how to play it yet. And the the majority of the people there were either spectacularly gifted already and, and playing in the top ensembles or in in the music business program. And I, I was sort of late to the gate playing jazz. And I wasn't a great sight reader. I wasn't a great technician. I was just sort of getting my feet wet, and I was just brutalized by this guy, Vince Maggio. I mean, he, at my first jury, he, in front of all the teachers after I played, he said, how did you get in here? You know, And I thought, i got to get out of here. I mean, I was like terrorized for a year and had a really bad experience there. And in the middle of like kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do, a dear friend of mine named Michael Geegan, who's a tremendous musician, is on the road with Roger Hodgson from Supertramp and you name it, you know, he plays every instrument, always on the road. He said, well, you should come back to New Jersey and study with Kenny Barron at Rutgers. And I said, who's Kenny Barron? He said, you better go to the music library and check him out. And I went, and it was like a light bulb went off. I heard Kenny's playing, and I thought, I think I get it. I think I understand where, how the how piano fits in jazz, how to do this. And I announced to my family I wanted to go to Rutgers. I went, auditioned, got in, and left, and had the most miraculous, four years studying with Kenny, who to this day is a a tremendous hero of mine. In fact, last month I played a tribute concert to him uh, near my hometown. And it was just like full circle for me to be on this concert with, you know, legends like Bill Charlap and Rini Rosnitz and Jeff Tane Watts. and, and, And I actually played a song that I wrote for Kenny years ago. So out of the darkness of that first year at University of Miami, came this incredible uplifting experience that was the greatest sort of uh, musical education of my life. And, and from that came everything Then I moved to the city and I started gigging around town. Not too long after that, I got the gig with Kyle Eastwood, Clint's son, and we were on a major label tour. And that was just, you know, that launched everything for me. But I have to say that there is a round trip story about university of Miami, because when I later Uh, became a writer and and then the editor of keyboard magazine i ended up interviewing vince maggio who had been so rough to me as a as a young student and now he was in his late 70s and i said i want to talk to this guy because his name still comes up you know by people about how influentially he was he had no memory of of terrorizing me he was like a, a teddy bear in his elder years 
And when he heard my music, he wrote me the most eloquent email saying how touched he was by the music I made, that he thought that I phrased like Sinatra and that, and that my storytelling was as important as anybody's. And out of that kind of olive branch came the most uh, incredible transformative relationship where he would call me for advice on lectures he was giving and I would play things and we would talk about music. And sadly he died a few years ago and it was a great loss for me because he, he became the mentor in his later years that he wasn't able to be to me in my early years. So I, you know, I lucked out. I had, I had uh, a mentor at, at Rutgers, Kenny Barron. And then I, I kind of got what I missed out on the first year at university of Miami later in my life. I think life is, is, is hopefully if you're open to it, it's cyclical. If you're paying attention and you're just kind of keeping on, you get a chance to sometimes make up for missed opportunities. And, and uh, I'm just always open to it. So, you know, talking about, about Kenny Barron, you know, was he the kind of, you know, sometimes I, I talk to people and, and they talk about being in, in music school and they have a teacher, for instance, who doesn't play with them or something. And then you've got people who will sit down and play side by side with you. Was, was Kenny that kind of, of mentor for you? Oh, I mean, I mean, that was the only way it was. There were two pianos at a 45-degree angle. And, I mean, I have these visceral memories of, you know, this is back in the 80s when you could, late 80s when you could smoke in universities. And Kenny was a notorious smoker at the time, and he would have one of these 120, like, more, the black cigarettes out of, hanging out of his mouth while he's, like, walking a bass line on a Yamaha DX7 ripping in the right hand with the cigarette with huge ash coming out of it. You're going, this is going to burn his hand or the piano. And it never did. But, you know, there I was with, with one of the, the greatest musicians of our time trading solos and learning how to phrase and learning how to, how to play the piano with the touch. I mean, to this day, when people say, oh, wow, I love your touch on the piano or I love the way you swing, I, I just say it's all from Kenny. In fact, when I played this... Uh, this tribute concert to Kenny last month, I, I said to Bill Charlap uh, on the side of the stage, I said, this is really ironic because I've been doing my Kenny Barron imitation for the better part of 30 years. And he said, haven't we all, you know? So um, luckily for me, I, you know, I, I had that kind of uh, influence like that. And if I know anything about playing the piano now, it's because of him. But uh, to answer your question more directly, no, he was very involved. He, Kenny was not. Kenny was the exact opposite of the kind of instruction I got at University of Miami, which was play this scale over this chord. Kenny was, you got a lot of colors, you know, just play all the colors. You had to have a certain degree of acumen to study with him, and it made me a better investigator on my own because I thought I don't want to sound like shit in front of Kenny Barron at my lesson next week. I was really, you know, my friends would be out going to keg parties and I'd be in the practice room. It was an amazing time. And uh, I have a young, I have young kids now too. And my, my son said to me, I don't like kindergarten because I don't, I have to do work all the time. And I thought, man, I know the feeling. And I think that about that all the time now, about the limitless time I had at Rutgers to just, you know, be in the practice room and, and explore and, and, and go to shows and try to figure it out. And I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, if I think back to to teachers who really I connected with, sometimes there were ones who were they were the ones who uh, saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see. Did 
did you have any of that with with Kenny Barron where it was like you didn't know you were good at something and he kind of pointed it out and said do more of that? Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I came from a school that I mean, at my uh at my first jury when I played for Vince Maggio, he said to me, if there's something else you can do, you might want to explore that cuz he put me on probation. I didn't think I was going to last in the music program. And when I got to Rutgers and I, I you know, I was still very scarred from that. I thought, you know, maybe I'm not as good as people told me when I was in high school. You know, I came from being like the best guy in the jazz band in my suburban New Jersey town, which is ironic because nobody knew anything about jazz in that suburban New Jersey town. I mean, it was, you know, again, it's like now the world is at everybody's fingertips. In fact, I'm always, I always tell people that if I played now, if I was starting out now as a 21-year-old musician and I played like I did when I was 21, I would be working at a Lexus dealer. I mean, the, the, the bar to entry now is so heavy and so high. The kids are playing their brains out. I mean, the technique and the harmonic chops and everybody can do everything. The one thing I would say is just that it's almost like the Instagram effect where everybody has so much facility. There's just no like moment where you breathe. I still listen to Horace Silver records because they feel really good. And I feel like somewhere between limitless technique and groove is in the heart, <laughs> there there could be a a, a, a a midpoint. But you know, to answer your question, because I'm always going off on a tangent, I remember going to uh, to Rutgers my first day and playing for Kenny, and thinking like I just played every wrong note under the sun. Like you know, here I am playing for this incredible legend, and I'm like just sticking my foot in my eyeball. And the first thing he said to me was, let me tell you what's good about your playing. And, you know, to a 19-year-old or to, you know, uh, trying to figure it out, to have somebody give him that shot in the arm, that was what I needed. Some people, you know, Bruce Hornsby told me that he really responded to, like, Vince's very uh, adversarial, you know, methodology. And some, some people do. Some people, they could take being berated by their teacher and they come back stronger from it. I, I'm, I'm just not that way. So um, I, I think Kenny just made me feel like I had something to offer. And when you feel like you're worthy and you feel like, you know, maybe there is a place for me in this. It just makes you want to work hard and it makes you believe that you could have a career. I mean, listen, uh, anybody in the creative arts, you know, we're on a, this is a, uh, a leap of faith, you know, to believe when you're 19 that you're, you could have a career making money in music. It's it's a fantasy in many ways. But because I had somebody like that saying you could do it, I did figure it out. That's really what I try. I'm, I'm not a teacher, you know, by trade. Uh, anytime I've like lectured or, or spoken to people, I, I've just tried to tell them that, that that there's that there's space for everybody. That music is not a contest. And uh, despite what people may tell you, you know, you he who plays fastest is not the winner. So Kenny gave me that. He gave me the belief that there's room for everybody if you're honest and you're, and the music comes from your heart. There is, a, I, I think, a really critical thing in, in teaching that happens, which is I certainly have had teachers where it was like they made me a really good, for instance, writer for the time that I was in their class. And the really good ones, I think, instilled in me this idea that, you know, if you're just yourself— the rest of it will will kind of fall in line, and it sounds very much like yeah. Kenny Barron was was from that latter school. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would always joke with Kenny because you know the, the the lessons that I would have with him when he would say, "Oh, you know, you sound good," and I would say, "I'm just playing your solo on tr- that Charlie Parker tune back to you." You know, I mean, I had no jazz vocabulary back at the time. I was really my touchstone was Kenny because he was the guy that I. I remember going to a Branford Marsalis concert in 1990 at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, and I met Kenny Kirkland, who was a hero of mine. May he rest in peace. I said, man, I'm studying up at Rutgers with Kenny Barron. He said, Kenny Barron taught me how to play the blues. You know, so many of us are in that tribe where we, we learned it from Kenny, you know, and, uh, and Kenny is, you know, he, he comes from a direct lineage of like Tommy Flanagan and Hank Jones. And, but you know what I, what I got from Kenny was, was just life lessons, you know, life lessons on treating the instrument like with, uh, with care and with kindness. And if you play like that and, and you play to make the band sound better, not just yourself sound better, then the music has soul to it, you know? And uh, I was never... I was never impressed with like effortless technique. I, you know, I'm, I think I have a modicum of technique just from years of playing piano, but I never worked at playing fast. It just never, never meant anything to me. I, I, I worked at, if I've worked at anything, it's just trying to tell an authentic story through, you know, later through songwriting and, play, and playing piano, but just through my music in general. And that, and you know, through Kenny, you can't help but feel that when you listen to him play. And I got, I was lucky enough to get that that lesson very early. You really haven't done too much in in the way of teaching. What is what has kind of been your reasoning for that? Because a lot of people are, you know, like, hey, pedagogy is where it's at. You know, we'll we'll do that and write songs and make records, and you kind of don't fall in that camp. You know, I've I've seen a lot of teachers that that taught because they had bills to pay, and I just, uh, you know, I feel like teaching is a real calling and you know i have i have um i have a kid who has a teacher that is so unbelievable you know emailing stuff on the weekends and she was telling us that she had you know quit like a six-figure salary because she hated it and she wanted to teach kids for you know for food stamp money and to this day she's happy as the pig and shit because of it i'm just not you know i feel like my the best thing i can teach people is the career that i've had is from being open you know i had a number one new age record because i was open to the idea of of collaborating with my dad's cancer doctor i'm not a new age artist but i was open i i was the editor of of one of my favorite magazines for 13 years because when that magazine wrote a story on me one of the editors years ago said oh you know you have a really interesting perspective would you like to write for us and i wrote some album reviews and then I, I thought oh this would be cool let me let me pitch some stories and I just kept pitching stories and and writing stories so you know the best thing that I can do to people who are looking to have a career in music is explain how I've had a career in music and that's by working my ass off and being open when when things presented themselves to me but in terms of teaching people how to play the piano you know to be honest I'm really self-taught I, I mean I went to music school um, but I'm not the kind of guy you want to put music in front of for your show tune rehearsal because I'm just I've never been a good sight reader. I'm not a theoretical musician. I play piano based on how the piano makes me feel, and uh, a lot of times it comes out poorly when the piano is terrible. You know, so 
I've always been fortunate that I, I had a very clear delineation for me between making money and making music. So when I wasn't making money as a young man through music, I had day jobs and I did other things because I thought, I don't want to confuse the two. I want to play the music I want to play. It's why I have 10 records out as a, as a leader, because I just never was in a club day band. You know, I never played things that I didn't want to be involved in because they just didn't interest me. So music was never just like a means to an end. It was, it was my, my soul, you know? So I would rather make espresso as a barista when I was in my twenties, than play a bunch of wedding gigs. It just, it just didn't appeal to me. So, so I'm not saying that I equate teaching with being in a wedding band, but I just have far too much respect for it to do it poorly. And I feel like, you know, God, there are great teachers and there are bad teachers. And I, I just feel like I would probably fall somewhere in between. <laughs> and I think that think too highly of it to do that. So I leave the – I've, I've done a lot of master classes. You know, I've coached ensembles, and I've, uh, I gave a, a, a master class back at, at Rutgers where I studied with Kenny last year and just sort of told my story about how it's been one foot in front of the other since I'm 21 and, and just – forward march and 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 you know unfortunately we live in a in a uh, immediate gratification society where everybody wants how many followers can i get how many how many what kind of endorsement can i get you know so it's just like i i always like the idea of being well known but to be well known for the work that i did not just because i wanted to be a celebrity yeah i i i think that teaching is is far too serious of a vocation to to take it lightly and it's just not my calling I'm Jed Bodwin, and you've been listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest has been John Regan. Regan is based in New York City, and his most recent album is 2023's Satisfied Mind. You can learn more about him at johnregan.com. That's J-O-N-R-E-G-E-N.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Torin Anderson. Digital editors are Carly Cooper, Beth Golay, and Hugo Fan. We receive production assistance from Fletcher Powell. You can learn more about Into Music at KMUW.org and email us at info at KMUW.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.